Today's episode of Pivot Points is made possible by listeners like you. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please remember to leave us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our community. This podcast explores the dynamics at play when we make the critical decisions that determine the course of our lives. We all make most decisions on limited information. Sometimes the outcomes are great, other times they're not. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned in the process. I hope this episode gives all of you a new perspective, whether you're currently serving, are a veteran like me, or regardless of background, are just interested in exploring the unique paths my guests have taken and examining their decision-making process. And with that, let's dive in. Michele Casertano, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. So is, is Michele right? Is it Michele? Yeah. Michelle? Yeah. My yeah. fitness consigliere? <laughs> like. So it, it really depends. Um, uh, if, if people call me Michelle at this point, I just answer because it's easier, but it is Michele. Yes. And, and to what level does your blood boil at this point when you uh, get called? It, it really depends, man. I think I'm used to it. Um, I think I told you the story that, you know, once I, I was, you know, I was at Stanford as Jews B and, uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice called me Michelle and I said that that was okay. High honor. Yeah. <laughs> but she corrected herself. Yeah. She's fluent in Italian. You she's, told me as well, right? She's amazing in Italian. Yeah. She, she stopped the class, look at me and in Italian was like, wait, what, wait, wait a second. You're Italian, isn't it? I'm like, yeah. So your name is Michele. He's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. No, it, was, it was incredible. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's Michele. So, originally, you were from Italy. Rome. And what part? Rome, specifically? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm a seventh-generation Roman. Seventh generation. From the side of my mom, yeah. Okay, so really a newcomer <laughs> is what they would call you there. We're going as back as you can, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I live, uh, yeah, I grew up in, in Rome. You know, I had a very traditional Italian life, um, was raised Christian Catholic. Um, I went to a very old, uh, um, Catholic school it was like 150 years old, right downtown Rome and pretty much spent my entire youth in Rome. And yeah, even my initial studies like university. Yeah. So like traditional Italian life though, what's that mean beyond <laughs> just attending Catholic schools? You know, it's, uh, well, okay. So from, from a cultural perspective, you know, it means I, I grew up a lot of like the classic movies, uh, that you, you hear about if you study Italian cinematography. Um, you know, I watch, I, you know, I watch, I, I watch a lot of like neorealism movie or like in general, just, uh, I watch a lot of like Italian comedies. Uh, and it also means, you know, I, I grew up like reading the Italian classics. Um, so, you know, and, and it also means, um, you know, I was, I was really reading a lot of like Latin, Latin books and like Latin artists and, uh, you know, just like, just like Italian education. And it also means, you know, I'm crazy for soccer or football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Any, uh, any team in particular? I'm a Lazio fan, you know, uh, Lazio. yeah, <laughs> for sure, man. You know, and, uh, even for a few years, um, 
you know, I was not a hooligan, but I would go every weekend to watch the game, like in the most heated part of the stadium. You know, I follow my team across Europe. So yeah, just very Italian, man. I had a scooter, you know, after, after <laughs> class, we would, you know, hang out of the high school. My high school was in, uh, right, right around the Spanish steps actually. And, uh, you know, some of my fondest memories were just, you know, we come out of school and we had a deal where I could pay five euro and I had a, a, pl a plate of pasta and a bottle of wine. And I was 15 years old at that time. And then we would sit outside, my friends would smoke cigarettes. I wouldn't, I never smoked cigarettes in my life, but it was kind of cool, you know, you're 15, you're smoking cigarette, you're looking at like, you know, girls passing by and, you know, you're talking about soccer. It's just an Italian life. Awesome. Yeah, I loved it, man. <laughs> Hitting on American chicks that are studying abroad, you know, the whole... Yeah, the, sh the whole shabam. Yeah, we, we would go to... Um, there were a couple clubs uh, that were famous for having actually American tourists. Uh, Sloppy Sam. Sloppy That's yeah. the name of a club? Yeah, Sloppy Sam is a bar and club, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, Sloppy Sam is like... Aptly named. Yeah, it was amazing, man. I actually never realized about how sleazy the name sounded after literally this moment. It definitely... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would go there and uh, yeah, you know, um, it, was, it was great. I, um, my family, you know, was very lucky. My, my mom and dad are, you know, still married. Um, been going on for over 45 years of marriage. Um, very, very much a family that was a lot into education. Um, so, you know, I was, I was raised with almost like a love for, for studying. Um, yeah. And so like great childhood, yeah, you know, say so. fond memories, all that. Yeah. What was the first real decision you, you made in your life that was, uh, that was kind of like presented to you. You had options. Was it college or, yeah. or something else? Yeah. I would say that the. Well, I would say the first thing, the first really important one was, uh, you know, what I wanted, uh, what I wanted to study. Um, Italian, Italian college works slightly differently um, to the U.S. one, meaning that um, you actually pick your major from day one. So, and not even the, not even like, you know, I'll be an engineer. You have to say, I will be a computer scientist or I will be a mechanical engineer. And yeah, it was, it was really tough. Um, I ended up, um, I ended up going, going for what here would be called, uh, uh, maybe like economics engineering or something like that. Economics engineering. I believe it's called, it probably translates, it's something between management science and engineering and like okay. business. So okay. maybe it's business engineering. I don't even think it really translates in English. Um, what is it in Italian? Ingegneria gestionale, okay, which means like management engineering. Got it. Um, and it was it was a weird. Honestly, it was it was not it was not a choice that made too much sense. Um, I always had a passion. Engineering made a lot of sense. You know, I had a. I tried to marry my my closest my biggest passion, which was definitely you know math and physics. And, you know, I was uh, early, early, early in my teenage years, you know, when I was like 14, 15, I would like code websites, you know, code my own video games. So the logical choice would have been um, computer science. Um, but, but computer science was not really a career. So in Italy, 
and so this was maybe like when I when I realized, you know, I started asking around and people were like, you should do management engineering. And I started doing it and I and I remember just like not enjoying it. It wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't close enough to my passions. And the only reason why I picked that career was because uh, a friend of my dad pretty much who was a very senior person in Italy told me you got to do management engineering. Therefore, you'll become a businessman. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm, you know, 18 years old. I really have no idea. Um, sounds like a good, uh, sounds like a good plan, you know? So I was trying to just optimize for what in the mind of this person would have given me the best career. Something like six to eight months into my first year, I, I actually switched. I was like, I can't, I can't do this, you know? And that was the first time that I realized a bit of almost like, this thing that whenever I look at decisions, I always ask myself, what's my passion? Um, I know I'll put out, you know, I know everybody has to put a lot of hours in what they do. And uh, it really, if there's something that like makes you interested or that you think is an interesting problem to solve, you're, you know, I feel like I'm more likely to do it better. Um, so I switched, and again I had to decide between. Would you switch to? Yeah. yeah. What are you deciding between? Me I had to decide between mechanical engineering and computer science, and I went with mechanical engineering, and again I ignored my true passion to go for the middle ground. Um, and and why did you do that? So it, it went again back to like what was the environment that I was exposed to. So in Italy you know, back in what we're talking about, like probably 2011, when I finished, when I graduated, so probably like 2006, right? There wasn't really, there is still not really a tech scene in Italy. So working in computer science wasn't to me really like something that would have granted me to find a fulfilling job. So, you know, there's this concept of like, you can only make a good decision if you're well informed about the decision that you're trying to take. And if you are lucky enough to be exposed to the right inputs. And I think that this concept of like being exposed to the right input is what pretty much translates to just being lucky. So I wasn't lucky enough at that point to have met a group of people that could have pitched me what it would have meant for me, what a career in tech would have meant. And spoiler, I work in tech now. <laughs> also, I mean, it sounds like your decision-making process was closed off to the idea of working outside Italy. Correct. Like you, your your kind of mindset and frameworks were built around yeah. that concept. Yeah. Okay. So I was I was trying to say how can I marry my passion with how can I get a degree that is gonna get me a good job, and you know in Italy there were two good jobs. You could either be a consultant, and you could work in uh, you know MBB, McKinsey, you know BCG or Bain. Or you could go work in banking in Milan. I wanted, uh, therefore, I was like, well, I want to work in consulting. That's the best job you can have. Um, in hindsight, it's not the right choice, right? Or like, I mean, it's a choice that really worked out for me. I love my degree. I really love what I studied. But like optimizing just for like what is the absolute best job I can get wasn't really going to bring me too much happiness. Um, beyond that, anyway, I got, I got lucky, I guess. And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, so as you switch, you study mechanical engineering, yeah. 
uh, you love math, so there's you know there's math yeah. there. Physics probably doesn't apply as much. So. It does quite a lot. Okay. Yeah, mechanical engineering is very, particularly in Italy, what is fascinating is that we don't have a lot of resources for labs, and so our the way that we study engineering tends to be very theoretical. Um, I actually finished both my bachelor of science and master of science without building a single thing. Okay. It was it was just math, pure math, uh, which I really I really liked honestly. Um, it, it brought me a lot of joy, um, and it was uh, personally uh, an extremely challenging uh, period of my life. It was a lot of was a you know was a lot of study, um, but I liked it. Well, and there's like a big final project you have to do as well, right? <laughs> my last two years of of university were. Were very were very interesting. Um, so, and, you know, I think we talk about lucky. You gotta be exposed to like good things. Um, you gotta be in the right moment, at the right time to be able even to make the right choice, right? But I think what really my university taught me, number two, is like the importance of your friends and your professional, both in your professional and personal life. So, I don't think I ever told you this, but. When I was uh, roughly my third year, um, our bachelor last three years, sorry if this sounds a bit like we're teaching everyone how the Italian education system works like. But when I was in my third year, I actually, uh, I got in a, in a pretty bad motorcycle accident. I don't know if I ever told you. And uh, it was rough. I, I, you know, I woke up in a hospital. Um, I had like uh, broke my kidney. Um, couldn't move from a bed um, and pretty much like uh, lost like eight months, six, 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 six months of life. And it was, it was rough. Like, you know, the day after I woke up, um, the day after I, w I woke up, you know, I woke up at this hospital, I called my, I called my parents, they came. And I remember that first night where um, I had to fall asleep. I was very tired. Uh, but I, I didn't want to fall asleep. And my dad was there, and then the doctor was there, and my dad was holding my hand, and I couldn't, I couldn't really see. I had developed diplopia, which means I would see double. Um, I was all bandaged up, you know, because I like, you know, hit my face, broke my, broke my cheekbone, and and my dad goes like, Michele, why, why you don't want to fall asleep? And I remember just like looking at my dad and saying, because I, I don't want to die, you know? And so it was crazy, you know? It was just like my dad had to tell me like, oh, you're, you're, you're not going to die. You're, you're waking up tomorrow. You know, obviously I'm not, I'm not in the army like you, right? So my life has been way more sheltered than your life. But to me, that was, you know, a, a big moment, you know? Like I, I didn't want to fall asleep. I think that was the first big turning point of my life. So, you and know. what was your your mindset coming out of that? And before answering that, you said it, you lost like eight to nine months. Mm -hmm. Were you in a coma after? No, the I just, just uh, the recovery process. Just the recovery process was very slow. I I couldn't really go to university because uh, well, first I had this problem where my my kidney was. Um, I got extremely lucky. <laughs> <laughs> like it keeps coming back. 
because I fractured my kidney, but allegedly, I had no idea at the time, around the kidney, there's like almost like a layer, it looks like a skin, and that skin didn't rupture, so my my kidney stayed in place. Um, so, so you know, had I driven home that night, I would have probably not made it. Um, the fact that I, someone made me stay at the hospital, it's, it's you know, why, I'm, why I was able to like overcome that. But just the recovery was very long. It was probably like, you know, maybe six months, eight months, a long time passed. But I, I, would just, I would just get tired very quickly. So, you know, my university was rather far from where I lived. It was like a 50 minutes drive. So I just, I just couldn't go there. And, um, and, you know, the thing is like, you have to attend uh, in order to like pass these classes because we don't really have textbooks. A long story doesn't really matter. But, you know, when I woke up the following day, you know, I, I just remembered I was very happy. You know, I just look outside. It was beautiful Italian sky. It was very blue. It was summer. And, uh, you know, I remember like, man, it's amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool to be alive today. Um, and, you know, I couldn't move from bed. Like the doctor said, you can't move because there's a risk that you might, you might risk your, you, you might lose your kidney, right? And, and here's where really like my, 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 my network, my personal network really came through. So every day, my university friends, you know, these, these, these four friends of mine, um, Claudio, Fabrizio, <laughs> Riccardo and Marco, uh, they would drive those uh, 40 kilometers to bring me notes from classes every single day and they would bring me recording from classes and exercises and um you know i couldn't start in the beginning but but then i remember you know going to my friend and say you know i kind of want to like i kind of want to like win that year of life back and they were like what does winning your your you know what does even winning a year of life back mean you know and to me it meant well it took me four years to take a three years degree because I spent six months, six months home. And I said, I want, I really want to finish my two years in one year. You know, I want to, I want to finish my master of science in half the time. And, you know, and my network did it for me. So like I couldn't physically attend all the classes. So the people, you know, my friends would literally attend for me if we had common classes take all the notes from me and then teach me the class. So be like professors. And, uh, those are some good friends. They're amazing. Yeah. They're amazing. I love them. Um, and, the, and then there was the other problem that in Italy, um, you can't really like, you, you, you can't, you can't really do two years in one. It's forbidden. And so I had to convince professors to make me take my exams off season and then eventually record the exams as completed. So I finished all my exams, exams in one year and then I had a gap year. I literally, I had to wait one extra year to graduate. Um, and then I would fly back and forth to Rome to see the professors so they could register my grades at the time that was allowed by law. Wow. Okay. So just navigating the bu bureaucracy that is 
yeah. in Italy. And then, you know, and then there's, I have this second gap here and it's about, if I have this plan, right? My plan is get a year of life back. What do I do in this gap year? And I decided, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll study German and find a job. That sounded like a good plan. Um, and that's how I started, you know, my, my brother, Stefano, he, he helped me find, a apply for a job in Germany and, um, yeah, brought, it was actually, I was lucky enough when I received two offers cause you're right. I had to write a final research to, to graduate. And, uh, yeah, I got, I got an opportunity either to do it at Procter and Gamble or to work uh, at a German automaker. Let's call it like that. Okay. <laughs> and so this is like, this is not, this is for post-graduation, your first job out. Oh, this is uh, prior to graduation. I have, to, graduation. I have to do this job. Pretty much you have to write a research. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I have this gap here. Maybe someone will pay me to write this research. And so you had these two competing offers <laughs> right. to do that. Yeah. And who'd you go with and why? Procter and Gamble. You pay me twice as much as the other company. <laughs> it's a good reason. Don't even don't need a framework for that. It makes sense. <laughs> and you know, I was I was like, what was it like 24, 24 years old and I really wanted to be independent. Uh, and I thought that this aligned with my with my framework, like I wanna keep studying German. <laughs> so I ended up leaving uh, you know, and this is luck because like, you know, I ended up living in, well, first in Berlin, studying German, and then I moved to a 32,000 people village in Southern Germany. It was me and five or five other Italians. Uh, two of us work at Procter and Gamble and four, the other four work as waiters at a pizza place. It was incredible. All right. And so does Procter, Procter and Gamble like have an office in the small village? Oh or? yeah, they have a factory. Yeah. Um, they have a factory and uh, the product is feminine pads. So right. I became a robotics engineer for feminine pads. Sound incredibly qualified for that position. <laughs> it was honestly the weirdest, weirdest experience of my life, but I, I, I learned a ton. I, I liked it actually. What was your biggest takeaway from that year? Um, have a plan um, and uh, be kind to your friends. Um, you can't do it by yourself. And the you cannot do it by yourself, I think also permeates like how I tend to manage team right now. Um, over indexing on personal relationship and through personal relationship or above anything else on the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can get to that in a bit, but like transformational leadership and trying to have a team buy into your vision and everything else is super important. Yeah. Yeah, for real. So you do that project in your gap year, which should have been your second year. Should have, yeah. Yep. And so bank for your buck, get your year back. Got my year back. I was so proud. Yeah, it was incredible. And as you kind of look look at the horizon on what's next Mm post-graduation, what's it look like? At that point, I knew that 
you remember I said that consulting was the best job that I could have had, right? Mm -hmm. And so he went back again to like, how do I get that job? And uh, what is the plan to get that job? So most of the people I knew, they go, in, they go work for a consulting company, they get an MBA. And so I wanted, I started thinking, how can I get that MBA, right? So it was important for me to create a profile that showed some um, leadership skills and uniqueness that would have been interesting enough to maximize my chances, to increase my luck to, to get that MBA. Um, and so, yeah, so I stayed abroad, but I look for, but you know, I, I receive a job offer for that plan for the feminine path plan. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't think this aligns with my passion. It's, I, you know, it was really, it was a great job. I had a great boss, you know, I made some great friends, um, which are still with me today. Um, I recently got married and I even had some people from the plant come almost like seven years later. Um, but, but it wasn't really like something that I found exciting. I think it was maybe like, I like technical work. I like being exposed to engineering quite a lot, but it was just like a bit too specialized. You know, I, I always tell my, my dad once asked me like, when did you know that that job wasn't for you? And I said, when my boss asked me what engine I wanted to put on the third conveyor belt. And I told him, I don't know and I don't care. I'm telling you, you need to put an engine on it. And so, and so this helped me realize that like, I like the strategy around engineering work more than what I liked the daily engineering work, uh, for which obviously I have the utmost respect as someone that, you know, comes from the field. So I started talking with my boss, with which I had built an extremely close relationship. And he helped me find another opportunity at Procter & Gamble that allowed me to build that professional profile that I thought was gonna be interesting for an MBA. So, you know, help me fulfill my plan. One thing we breeze past a little bit is, yeah, sorry. is a bit of how you always knew you wanted to do consulting because yes. it was one of two jobs that seemed that all your friends went into, like Correct. your class of people yep. would go do out of your university. Mm -hmm. But then like your drive to be a consultant was was based on that expectation it was, yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. And then I'd say that like going to get an MBA seems to have been downstream from consulting like people who can go to consulting, go get an MBA. Correct. Yeah. But what you had to have more of a thought process on yeah. the MBA than just that. And how did that then become the driving force on what you wanted to do even more than the consulting piece? I, I, you know, it goes back to this love for like this passion for education that I have, or like this love for education that comes from my family. And I always thought that, Engineering had given me, had helped me develop what I hope to, what I hope, be, what I hope is a pretty good analytical approach to problem solving. But I felt like I wanted to complete my education. So you know, when I when I look at someone like you, right, 
I, I think I told you that I think you're an American hero, right? We, we said it a couple of times. All lies, but sure. I, I disagree. <laughs> and so, you know, for instance, for a person like you, you definitely have extremely good leadership skills, right? Difficult situations, ability to evaluate, you know, what's the best thing to do, right? But then an MBA, I'm going to guess, allows you to like complete your profiles and make it more round. So similarly for me, engineering and giving me a very analytical mind and the, the ability to like build and, you know, like take problems, divide them and solve. But I knew that in the future I wanted to do consulting, but I also always has this inkling that I wanted to build something. And building and this love for building that has been with me for the longest time. I always thought in order to be able to be very effective at building something, you kind of got to be a very well-rounded profile where I had to balance my very analytical um, studies with something that was more business, finance, uh, marketing. So being able to understand the other um, side of uh, the engineering and technological development equipment, which is how much money should we put on something and why. So in that in that framework, you know, I want to build something. This is my long term view. Um, I wanted to to an MBA to complete education. Become a more well run profile. Um, and then I was thinking consulting was going to help me understand how um, decisions are made at very complex companies at a very high level and marrying those all these experiences I'm going to be a very effective technology leader so when I was at Procter & Gamble um, the other Italian guy that works there asked me what do you want to do when you grow up and I told him I want to influence technological development and he told me that I was uh, full of shit. <laughs> and did he support that claim with any uh, reasonable, logical position or no? He told me that people of my age, which was probably again 24, 25 at that time, tend to have a very high opinion of themselves and think that they can actually change and influence and that I should have stopped thinking that way. I think he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> How old was he? He was in his 40s. Okay. So he had been at the factory before. It's not like he was at this plant with you in a similar, similar program. No, he, it just no. happened to be an Italian that was... Correct. Okay. Yeah. Oof, man. It was, it was fascinating. Glad you didn't take that advice. No, I, I didn't. Um, but I also have to say that as I, as I, you know, as I passed through... As I passed through an MBA and as I ended up doing consulting, actually, um, I got out of those experiences more than what I thought I was going to get. And maybe even different things that what I was expecting to get. Um, so, you know, I let's go. Let's backtrack. Right. Mm -hmm. So I take this job. They offered me a job where I was going to I was going to move to Belgium, to Brussels. 
and uh, I was gonna do a launch of new supply chains uh, for Procter and Gamble, which was an extremely fulfilling job. You know, I was I was rather young, um, but I had a pretty large team. Um, they were not, you know, I was like one of those dotted line people that don't really have authority, but somehow should influence. And with my team, our job was to like qualify new technologies and, la and launch new plants, right? And, um, and so it was a unique opportunity very early on to be able to like understand how do you influence people in your team. Um, but, and what I did was, again, simply invest in personal relationships, spending time off work, just being genuine and vulnerable and just like, you know, enjoying the presence of the other people in the team, room, I would say. Yeah. And you do, how long did you do that job for? Oh, man. So I did six months internship and then 14 months into the job, I started preparing for the MBA. And I think, if I, if I remember correctly, um, I quit my job 22 months into it. So because you were accepted. You I were was accepted. Yeah, I went to business school. And uh, I don't. we've never talked about this either. Where did you apply? Where did you get into? And <laughs> obviously, I think the decision-making process is fairly straightforward, but yeah, we'd love to hear. <laughs> I, I love this question. Um, a lot of time, so I, I ended up going to Stanford to the GSB. And people, I had people ask me, why did you pick the GSB? And the answer is always because the GSB picked me. It was the only MBA that I was offered. Uh, I applied to Harvard. Um, I applied to Wharton. I applied to the GSB and applied to Columbia. Colombia because my brother went there as well uh, and also Italians love New York <laughs> I got waitlisted at Wharton and I didn't even get a call from HBS and then I was accepted at the GSB all right no brainer no brainer yeah well it's a good thing too because uh, you happen to have met your wife out there so I met my wife out there yes Anna uh, yeah we we met at a dinner <laughs> But you know, I, it was it was crazy, right? Because I entered this MBA, and uh, you know, talking about luck and expanding your horizon, this is uh, the first time in my life that um, I I am exposed to um, design thinking. And um, there's a school that's called the D School, the Design School of Stanford, which is this cross department, pretty much institution where you can go and attend classes. And uh, somehow I went to listen to um, Jim Patel, who is the founder of the D School, talk about um, design for extreme affordability, which is a class that um, pretty much pairs up wannabe entrepreneurs, which is very Stanford, with a nonprofit trying to solve a problem. And um, I felt like a click, you know? I felt like, wow, so there's, there are careers where as a job you build stuff, but you're high level enough where you are actually selling the product as well, which I found fascinating. So I applied for the class and um, 
yeah, and I, I, I got in and uh, and then during my first year, I started working on on a non-profit, on a company uh, called Real Skin. Um, and that was my pretty much my entire first year of MBA. Um, have I ever told you why it's called Real Skin? You have not. Because we harvest skin from cadavers. So it's a, it's a it's a skin bank. So my team and I started in Nepal um, the first ever skin bank, which is pretty much um, what we do is that we help uh, patients uh, like burn victims survive uh, by collecting skin that then we use for uh, skin skin grafts. And it's the first is the first. Uh, the first skin bank of its kind to be ever open um, in a developing country. We roughly treat uh, um, 200 patients a year. It has been up for quite a few time. We started in 2014. Um, it is probably you know the most fulfilling thing I've done in my life, um, and I'm very proud of it. And so you, you, that nonprofit already existed. No, I started you, it. You started it. Yeah, from scratch. Okay. All right. That I did not know either. So it sounded like you would be paired up with an existing nonprofit. Correct. But in the class, you had to create a nonprofit. So this nonprofit uh, research, they're really good, came to us. And they were like, um, you should build us a dermatome. A dermatome is, an, is, a, is a surgical knife that is used to uh, collect uh, skin. And uh, we started doing the research in order to build it, and we we quickly found out that um, it was a bad idea. Dermatom were actually cheap, and uh, it was not really going to have a, a very big impact. It was a fourteen-week class. We were eight weeks into it, nine weeks into it, and we had nothing, zero. We are miserably failing. And uh, I remember I went talking to Jim Patel, and he was like, "Miguel, you're 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 failing. Like, you did nothing. Like, you have nothing. You know." And so my team and I, you know, we were all there, and we started talking about, "Oh, but you know, this happened and that happened." And uh, Jim gave me the biggest suggestion that I always repeat to everyone that calls me and says that they want to be an entrepreneur. Just fucking do it. I was like, Jim, what do you mean? You're here in the room talking about what you should have done or could have done. Just, just, just fucking do it. Just go out and do it, you know? Do something. And yeah, that I think became a very important lesson that I was not expecting to get through an MBA. That at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, people spend a lot of time when they manage teams um, trying to find who is at fault for what, or like, you know, there's all this, oh, he said that, or she said that, and you know, I think Jim Patel told me, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, either we succeed as a team or we just fail, so just, just, go, out, just go out and do something. And, and then we started talking with like, you know, we started expanding this horizon. I think this, you know, something that I said a few times, it comes with like, you know, putting yourself out there to know more things. And we found that in Thailand, there was this uh, skin bank. 
and uh, so I I called the manager of the scheme bank in Bangkok, and uh, I wrote him an email from a Stanford email saying, uh, um, you know, this is Michele, I'm a Stanford student, I'm trying to do this in Nepal, can you answer the phone? And so yeah, so I was on the phone with him, and you know, we studied how does a skin bank look like, and it's funny, right? Because if you recall, I said that I had to pitch to my professors that they had to uh, register my grades a year later, right? And I think that that year of life that drive the bit of I have a plan or the bit of like at least I'll put myself out there, I'll pitch my position. I think this is also what helped me um, when I was trying to like help my team pivot from a failing idea um, to starting this, uh, identifying the opportunity for the skin bank. So um, we pitched it, uh, we convinced the nonprofit to actually start this uh, skin bank, um, and then I raised money for it. So I started uh, hitting up the, the Rotary, the Rotary Club of Palo Alto, same thing, just went there. And I told him, hey, have you ever considered like supporting design, the supporting design for affordability? I explained what the product was and I ended up uh, raising $10,000. As far as I know, I'm the only student that ever raised money as part of the class. And uh, we donated $6,000 to the class and we kept $4,000 for our project. So I went to Jim and I told him, Jim, I know you said I was failing, but I kind of feel like I paid at least for a C at this point. <laughs> and his response was? He started laughing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and so then, then we started it and uh, it's up and running in Nepal. Do you still, are you still active in any capacity? I'm not active. Um, I was very lucky. Two of my, um, two of the teammates that were there um, they're actually doctors, uh, from Stanford, um, and they do it full time. Um, I felt very blessed because, um, as this, uh, skin bank, um, kept operating, they actually, uh, Lawrence Kai, who was one of these, uh, persons I work with, one of these doctors, well, he was a student. Now he's a doctor. So I guess now I have to call him Dr. Kai. Uh, he, he called me and he was like, Michele, I want to ask you something. I was like, what? He's like, do you mind if I put your name on our published healthcare paper about starting a nonprofit, uh, skin bank in Nepal? And I was like, wow, man, I actually, I feel like, you know, I feel humble that you think I, I should be in that research. It's like, yeah, you had such a nice role. I was like, but there's one problem. It's like, what? I have to put you as the last one of the people, of the authors. And I was like, and he was like, you have to understand this politics. And I was like, Lawrence, that's totally fine. Uh, but you know, again, it was great, right? Because I spent so much time with this team and I spent so much time, you know, getting to know Lawrence. And years later, he just called me, called me and made me feel that I was still part of that team. And, uh, made me feel like we were making something important. Right. And so you got to build something there. Yeah, that and was the first time. First time. And yeah. I think that you, you tasted blood. Yeah, I did, yeah. for sure. I loved it. So what, uh, what came next? Well, I had my summer internship, um, which was at BCG. 
And I do my summer internship at BCG. I meet some amazing people. Um, I'm very biased. I think they're, you know, I think they might be the best firm. Definitely they were a good fit for me. Also, fun fact, when people ask me, why did you pick BCG is the same answer. It's the only firm that offered me a job. Though, I mean, it's like, this is something interesting, right? Because Stanford is the only, co is the only MBA that gave me a job. They gave me an, uh, an MBA, right? BCG is the only firm that gave me an offer. So luck plays a part. But the plan to maximize that luck is really what was helping me, in my opinion. I was crafting a career, you know, and I was taking decisions that were going to help me maximize the chances to then just, you know, be lucky and be able to do what I wanted. Absolutely. And in both those cases, like it's a matching process. Yeah. Like you're, you're applying and they're choosing. Yeah. And there's always more qualified people yeah. than there are spots in any class. One day someone woke up, wrote the, read my essay, found my essay interesting, was in a good mood and decided, yep, we should hire this person. Um, you know, even at BCG, um, you know, I ended up interviewing, the, my first round ended up being with uh, an Italian, um, at that time principal, um, now a partner. And I ended up having my entire career at BCG with this person, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it definitely, it's two way. There's a matching. I think, I think both Stanford being like, um, maybe a very, uh, feeling first <laughs> program and building first program really aligns with my personality and BCG effectively being a bit more geeky, a bit more analytical, really aligned with my personality. Yeah. And so you do your internship. I do, yeah. But you come back to yeah. school, and like most Stanford yeah. students, you know, you, you you're eager to start a company. Yeah, I, but yeah, because I, I think did you told the first me, year. Yeah, I, I think you told me you were on a boat one time. Yeah, and there were twelve <laughs> or thirteen people on the boat. Yeah, and ten CEOs. Ten CEOs. Yeah, and I said, guys, someone got to get a job here. <laughs> can't all be CEOs. So yeah, fact. <laughs> fact. We can't all be CEOs. Some, someone has to be. Someone has to be. But not 10 out of 12 people. Yeah. yeah. Especially straight out of business school. Yeah, correct. Someone got to get a job. We got to pay the school debt. So what did you, what did you decide to start your second year of business school? So I come back from, uh, I come back from BCG and I actually had a second internship. And I go to work at a startup in Guatemala. It's a six people startup called uh, Yalo. And I meet this guy, Javier Mata, who is the CEO of, uh, of Yalo. And I love the guy. I look at him, I was like, if he, can, if he can make a career out of building something with so much passion, you know, why cannot I do the same? Um, and this is still in your summer, so you did yeah. a full internship. Yeah. How much summer did you have left? Quite a, well, I probably had six weeks, and I spent four weeks in Guatemala. Okay. It was, it was weird, man. I lived in a compound. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was like I started getting very into like the tech scene of Guatemala. It was, it was incredible. Um, and I helped them build uh, part of the new processes, so then I come back and I'm like, I think I want to start a company. 
and I had, and throughout this internship, I kept the second internship, I had pitching this idea that I had, which was pretty much to build the world best on-demand staffing company for uh, blue-collar workers, which is an idea that I had uh, as I was working at uh, Procter & Gamble. Um, and so, yeah, so between my first and second year, after my internship, I have two weeks and I start writing an application for um, an engineering class um, led by a professor, Jack, Jack Fuchs, who's also still very close to me. And I, I end up getting into the class, being accepted with my project, and I start, uh, and I start a company called Blue Crew. Blue Crew. Yeah. All right. How many people at Stanford did bought in with you and were a part of it? Uh, I had uh, two co-founders that I recruited during, cla during that class. And um, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, definitely, you know, did some mistakes um, that, you know, I, it was a great, great learning experience for sure. Um, we, we st I started the program and, you know, initially the feeling was um, this is just going to be like schoolwork um, on an idea I had. Uh, but then I just fell in love for the process of like building and using technology and cell technology. And so three weeks into the class, I started uh, calling VC funds asking for money. And I... Had you built anything yet? You're three weeks in. Oh, I had zero. But I started pitching, you know? I started pitching this this vision. And uh, and that's... Uh, yeah, and then uh, I received a phone call. I, I mean, I'm, I'm out at the bar and I would just pitch continuously. I had this idea that if... If an idea you have, it's so easy to replicate that if I pitch you the idea, you can go out and do it. It's a bad idea. But if I can pitch you an idea and you buy into it and you can see the value, over time I'll get better at pitching it and also like the, my, the idea in my mind will become more clear. And so I get more out of presenting what I'm trying to build to a network rather than keep it a secret. That's why when people tell me I'm working on something, but it's stealth, I'm usually like, okay, you're probably working on nothing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to share your idea. Correct. It has to be defensible because it has to be hard. Exactly. Is and <laughs> on top of that, let's say it's new tech. Like yeah. you can tell someone what it is. That doesn't mean they'll be able to build it. Correct. Like, it's not like you have to share Hopefully. intellectual property. Hopefully. Hopefully. And who, so, who, who knows? Who knows in Palo Alto, I guess. Yeah. But. And so, you know, I start pitching, 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 pitching. And I pitched to a friend of mine. I think I was maybe like at the fourth round of Tequila at that point. And uh, so the pitch was perfect. The pitch was amazing. And this friend of mine, after the pitch looks at me and he goes like, do you know I work at Andreessen Horowitz? That is, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, like, you know, maybe the most important VC fund out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> which is a lie, I knew. It's not a lie, I didn't wanna like, 
like, oh, really interesting. And he was like, you should come and meet Todd Ludwak, that is like um, a very senior operating partner at Andreessen Horowitz. So an operating partner is a partner that doesn't do investments, but help companies scale. And Todd was an extremely like interesting person to meet. And he gave me some um, very good ideas on how to build a company and what I should like work on. He really loved the idea. We were supposed to have a 30 minutes meeting. He ended up being like over two hours. Um, and I came out of that meeting knowing that I didn't have an idea. I had a company. It's just no one knew about it yet. And so I started, um, yeah, I started working on it nonstop. Um, and uh, I started pitching it to professors, um, including, uh, um, you know, the, the professor that, you know, is the most important to me that I, again, I stumbled upon. There's this concept of like, you know, be having a plan and trying to maximize it, but also luck plays a part. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. And I, and, I met, and I met this professor called Andy Ratcliffe, who is the, he's the founder of Benchmark. It's one of the most successful VC found out there. And he is the founder of Wealthfront. Uh, there's a, it's a um, fintech company, pretty successful fintech company. And Andy, I went there and he told me, so Michele, what are you doing? And so I just, and I look at him and I was like, Andy, do you want me to tell you the story that I tell to VCs or do you want me to tell you my life story? And he started laughing, you know, he's, and he's really tall, but somehow his chairs are very short in his living room. And so he always has like these knees pointing towards the ceiling. He's mild, intimidating. He's a very tall guy, you know? And he was like, no, tell me the story. And so I started telling this incredible story about how I really like Buddhism and I, I really admired like process efficiency and I noticed this and somehow this long pitch ended up with therefore I'm building a staffing agency <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes like okay I'll give you $25,000 and that was my first money it was just a one hour meeting so now I had money and um, and I was like oh that's great Andy what, what do you do with this and he said you go around and you tell everyone, Andy gave you money. <laughs> and then you try to raise more money. And that's what I did. And so when I was, uh, I was, that's <laughs> crazy, man. I was like uh, maybe two quarter in my second year and I had raised like $600,000. So I called BCG. I didn't have, a, I hadn't accepted my offer at that point. And uh, I had, I had time. I still had like maybe like two, three weeks that I could have hold into this, hold, you know, held, held to this offer. And I was like, I told him, I just raised a bunch of money and I feel like this is my calling. And I'm telling you earlier than what I'm supposed to, because I want to be fair to you and to the other people that would really love to have this job. And the reason why I did that is because I felt like BCG and the people I met there had invested a lot in, on me. And just being fair was the only right way to preserve a, 
personal and professional relationship with the people at the firm. So yeah, so I turned it down and I incorporated the company. And yeah, and then I got into Y Combinator. All right. Not easy to do. Yeah. I I get into YC. And I'll tell you something funny I usually don't tell anyone. My co-founders didn't want to do Y Combinator. They said that it was not going to be helpful. Why? They said we were too too much, like they were too big for Y Combinator. We were already too much further on our journey. And I disagreed. And so I told them, okay, can we apply if I write all the applications? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, I will literally answer the questions three times as if I were three different people. <laughs> and then you can proofread them and upload them. And so I wrote, I actually applied three times to YC as three different people. Sounds pretty brutal. It was, it was bad. I mean, at least they proofread it. So, I mean, they were like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. This aligns with like what we would have written. Um, and then how long is the application? It's pretty long, man. It took me, it took me quite a long time to do it three times. Um, and then I, I had to convince them, right? Cause I needed the buy-in. And so I started looking for people online that had gone to Y Combinator. And I started like asking them if please they could talk with my co-founders cause I needed to convince them to, to accept to go to Y Combinator. And, uh, and yeah, so then I received a phone call um, from uh, Paul Bukait, who is the, he's the inventor, he's, he's most famous for having him uh, being the inventor of uh, Gmail and for having come up with the motto, don't be evil. And, and he calls me and we go into this interview and then he calls me the following day and he was like, during your pitch, you told me that you had signed a contract for $1.4 million. I tell him, that's correct, Paul. But your company is not live. Like, that's correct, Paul. How did you sign that contract? And I told him, I cold called them, walked into their office and convinced them that I had a company. And so they, and so they admitted as advice. And I, and I kept doing that. <laughs> and so why did you think that YC was necessary for your business? At that point, I had been, it, it goes back to this concept of like being immersed to uh, in an environment where I could have uh, get to know how to play the game. And I could have like talked with other entrepreneurs um, and being able to quickly like upskill both my network and my capabilities. I think what I had learned from my previous decisions is that the only way to take the right, a good decision is to talk with as many people as possible and to build a network. And so YC was, and is still, you know, uh, maybe the most prestigious startup incubator in the world. And so I thought that this was going to allow me to really take my company to the next level and to grant it um, 
almost like a status in the you know, an extra status badge of honor in the um, startup scene which then would allow me to attract the best talent and the best money so that's why okay and were you able to convince your co-founders to do it yeah we did we did it and it was a great experience and uh, it led to some of like the um, fondest and absolutely weirdest experiences of my life um, well first of all it, my life became um, extremely busy so my my second year effectively was working full-time starting a company while trying to finish an MBA which meant that something had to go um, so I started choosing classes uh, to minimize the amount of time I had to spend in class which was a decision that in hindsight I don't say I regret because I don't really regret like starting a company, but definitely when people now come to me and say, I want to start a company during my MBA, I usually say, are you willing not to have an MBA? And if the answer is yes, sure, go ahead and do it. But be aware, you will not have an MBA. And I just remember. We, not, not in the sense that you're not going to graduate, but in the sense that the, the learning and the tools correct. that you're supposed to do during that, that time frame. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, and also like, you know, you're not going to go to a party Tuesday night if you're working 80 hours a week, plus you're doing a full-time MBA. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was crazy because we, we started, you know, this console, like, it, it's kind of funny because like, we really had no resources. I mean, we had money, but money arrived a bit later. Uh, and also we didn't want to waste money. So we would go to the library and we would uh, steal the monitors and we would bring the monitor in a conference room and we would build an office. And every day, every morning, we would go there, 8 a.m., take the monitors, we would build an office, work all day, we would take the monitors, dismantle the office, and bring it back to the library. And every day we would like do this. And you didn't think about starting WeWork at that? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have, yeah. <laughs> And I, I and it was it was gruesome. Like, um, you know, I would uh, sometimes I would be so tired that I would live off campus at that time that I would like go to my co-founder's apartment and I would just sleep on the floor. I would just literally just like take a pillow, lie down, and sleep on the floor because it was just like nonstop. What's the timeline too for Y Combinator? How long does it last? When does it start? When does it end? How long does it last? It's, I'm trying to like marry it up with the timeline that you're in school. It starts roughly beginning, uh, beginning, uh, uh, May. Okay. And it's 10 weeks. So it ends prior to graduation roughly. So like the last four to six weeks of school, you're, I, I had a $20 million company devoted fully to, yeah, my, my company, <laughs> I came out of Y Combinator and I, I raised a bunch of money. Um, I raised a bunch of money and the company was worth um, um, $21 million. So at that point, like, yeah, I mean, that was, that was it, right? It's like, that was, that was my job. I had, uh, I was living in a hacker house, uh, just like in the movies. Uh, we had, uh, <laughs> we had a bearded dragon uh as a as a company pet 
um yeah and that's everything i would do i would just like you know pitch to investors try to sell try to grow the company and i would just do that day in day out and so what was the next big you know decision point for you with the company as you were trying to grow it because would you would you have called it seed funding coming out of white combinator a very strong seed yeah yeah seed funds right now are even larger than that uh but yeah it was like three million dollars all in okay um so it was a strong seed though um you've probably grown your team at this point too yeah we grew the team we start hiring and honestly um i think um that's maybe where i started uh doing some mistakes on like hiring um and uh we are i am covered by quite a tall stack of legal agreement so you know i i would say eventually we we decided that it was better for me to leave the company and move on. Um, and um, yeah, and just leave the company, uh, take an interest in it and just move on so after you, two years, roughly. After two years. Mm-hmm. So you finish Y Combinator in June. Mm-hmm. You run the company for another year and a half? Well, until February. Until February of the following year? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, everybody says hire slow, fire fast, mm. but like that's, it's hard to do when you're scaling, especially a young company, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the biggest challenge that hiring decision or mm. was it, and then what, what eventually led to that discussion about staying with the company mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or moving on? So I think, uh, I think you remember that I said that for me, it's very important to like invest in like personal relationships, but at that point in my career, investing in personal relationships also meant um, avoiding uncomfortable conversations. So avoiding, avoiding difficult conversations, it's what led to me to have some um, different views with my co-founders um, that pretty much then caused the fact that um, pretty much we started seeing it very differently and I had to leave. I had still a pretty strong interest in the company from an equity perspective. You know, I think we found an extremely amicable agreement. Um, But it was, you know, I would say professionally and personally, um, maybe the, yeah, maybe professionally the, the hardest moment of my life, for sure, like, having to leave behind a company that I had um, envisioned, you know, um, an idea problem I identified, a company for which I had closed 100% of the first few million dollars of deals, raised 100% of the money, um, was really, really hard. And it was a very humbling moment for me and really, really difficult great learning uh, yeah usually comes at a price yeah but you know again like great great experience i whenever people talk about you know obviously i i always like to say uh a bit maybe uh, it's a it's a bit of a joke that i always whenever people ask me about my startup experience i always like to say that I successfully started and awfully managed a multi-million dollar company. 
um, which I think it's funny, right? Because it's not, it's not true. Like the company, you know, the company ended up going pretty well, and you know, I think we didn't do as much as good as we wanted to. Um, after I left, I think the company was never able to raise money again. So we ended up getting acquired by um, IAC, which is the company behind Tinder. So if some of our listeners are Tinder users, thank you for paying for my wedding. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's what we did. Um, that's That was an experience, but it was great, right? Like th there's one of these moments in which... Um, Paul Burkite invited me, invited not me, just me, but invited uh, all the companies that he was overseeing uh, for uh, a party at his place. And uh, Dalton Caldwell, who's, I believe, the founder of Friendster, um, also a YC partner, started singing Teenage Dirtbag uh, next to, you know, next to his at that time girlfriend um and then Paul Bukait was holding a tres comas tequila um and then you know it was just, it was just like an incredible moment and then I I went out uh, on, uh, on there was a fire pit and you know Dalton came and Paul came and then Michael Siebel who's the founder of Twitch came you know and there were just like these gurus of tech you know extremely successful people and and I was just sitting there. And I think in just sitting there was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I, I was very, very blessed. I, you know, I, I met um, Paul Graham uh, quite a few times, you know. Um, he's such an interesting guy. Um, I know, it, was, it was a crazy experience. And then my, my favorite one is, you know, when Ashton Kutcher wrote me an email. Um, Say more. <laughs> so Ashton was uh, Ashton was at Demo Day. Demo Day is when we present the companies at Y Combinator, and Ashton is a very active investor. And I received this email from Ashton, and uh, and he sends me this beautiful email. Like I'm telling you, like he spent time writing it, and the email said, "I want to invest in your company." Um, I understand the struggle of blue-collar worker looking for money. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I couldn't afford to pay for this or that, so I used to plow, to plow snow. And, and so when I see your mission, you know, of helping people with better employment, uh, um, it really resonated with me. And then he signs his letter. And he does like blank space, blank space. And then just in the middle of the email, he does a little dash and then ash only small font. And I just found it amazing. I'm like, how much time did this dude like spend even thinking how to sign an email? And I don't know. I thought he, I thought he was incredible. I thought he was a very nice guy. And yeah, and so I accepted his money. Okay. So Ashton Kutcher, investor. Yeah, Ashton Kutcher is one of my investors, and it's definitely one of my fun facts whenever I talk with people. Uh, we definitely had like some extremely good people investing. Uh, investing, yeah, we were, we were very blessed. 
I mean, I'd say just the experience of meeting all those incredible people and the knowledge you gained from them was probably worth its weight in gold. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. One lesson that, you know, founders I've talked to and then some people I've heard who have ended up being extremely successful, but one lesson that they've learned is try to keep as much equity as possible yeah. so that you can make decisions and you know, all that. Uh-huh. But then of course the, the, the inverse of that is that it's very hard to grow fast if you don't raise money yeah. and take on equity from, yeah. from outside sources such mm-hmm. as venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. So what is your opinion having gone through that experience? And it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, that by the time that the strategic visions weren't, weren't aligned anymore between mm-hmm. you and your two co-founders, mm-hmm. they probably combined had more equity. And if they were seeing the world the same way mm-hmm. and you saw it differently, mm-hmm. was there even much of a, I mean, if, if it was amicable, great, but was there much of a, of a choice on your part on, Hey, I want to stay. I think my vision's going to be successful versus their, their belief on mm. the direction the company needed it to go. I don't think that at that point, uh, I could have, um, I don't think at that point I could have, I could have pushed my, my view through to be fair. Um, though it does you know going back to the concept of like um not avoiding the hard conversations with your team members a big problem a big mistake that we did you know and i'm saying that we did because at the end of the day um when i left we had two days after i was gonna leave uh, we had a final round uh, final pitch with an extremely important VC fund Um, and what I heard is that from a contact I had there that uh, they wanted to give us 12 million dollars on a 40 million dollar evaluation that was going to be the deal and it's crazy because when I left, you know, when I, you know, when I had to leave the company, I received a phone call from one of my co-founders and he was like, Hey man, I said, yeah, what's up? Can you call so-and-so and tell them that we're going to come a week later? And I was like, I don't think you realize that I'm the contact. I, I cannot do that. And so, you know, we, 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 we lost, uh, we lost the opportunity to raise that money even. Um, but why do I say that avoiding conflict is really what took us there? First, when we started this company in class, I thought it was just a class, right? And so I was like, one of my co-founders was like, I want to be the CEO. I'm like, go ahead. It's just a class project. But then I start pitching and I start raising money, right? And so we get to the end of the class and literally the last day of the class was we had to pitch in front of a bunch of VCs. And the professor goes to this other founder and goes like, Michele should be the CEO. He's more qualified. He should be pitching. And so I think that this switch between my co-founder and I on who the CEO was, always created almost like this sort of imbalance, 
this problem, you know. Tension. This tension. But my mistake was not to be upfront in the beginning and say, this is my idea and my vision. I'll be the CEO if you don't want, if that's not okay with you, I'll find another co-founder. And so uh, avoiding the hard conversation there. The second time I avoided a hard conversation was then we, we went ahead and we started splitting the equity. A lot of time people will tell you, um, this is done like when everybody gets the same amount of equity, because then it's difficult to take decisions. And I made the mistake that everybody does. I said that we were different. I was trying to avoid conflict because I was trying to nurture the personal relationship. Especially after the CEO switch. Correct. Right. Correct. And this was the second mistake. And then the third mistake, you know, was in around the hiring, I would say, where I was trying to avoid conflict on who I wanted to hire. And so I would say avoiding the hard conversation from the beginning is really like what effectively um, allowed us to be successful. You know, they're still around. They're a great company. I you know, obviously I wish them all the best. But, you know, our main competitor, um, I think they're worth like $300 million right now. Um, and, you know, we didn't got acquired for nearly that amount of money. Um, so if I could go back and, you know, if when I'll do it again, if I'll do it again, being able to still build those personal relationships, though at the same time, while making sure that I have the hard conversations is what's going to, in my opinion, help me build a better company. It'll, I mean, the conversations are only hard in the moment, too. Like, the reality is that if there's friction, there's likely to be conflict in, 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 in the period between, you know, when the conversation should happen mm -hmm. and the ultimate result. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. Yeah. Everybody's just kind of, like, pretending like there's no, mm -hmm. like, there's no elephant in the room. There's no mm -hmm. problem. There's no friction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great lesson. Yeah. And, you know, but to answer your question, which, sorry, I'm taking way too long to answer, um, I should have kept more equity than my two co-founders. Um, I should have probably kept like 55% of the equity, which is really, really hard when you have three co-founders. Um, but at least I could have tried to get like, you know, a 45 or something like that. Would have not really changed having a 50, 45, but like trying to have... Um, an, um, an amount of equity that would have allowed me actually to control the outcome. The, the issue of just like taking a company and splitting it into thirds and avoiding the difficult conversation is that you don't build a decision-making process. At the end of the day, as the CEO of a company, your role is to call the shot. That is your job. Um, but in order to call the shots, you have to have the authority to call the shots. In my company, we decided that it was really it was hard for me to take a decision independently uh, because we never uh, we never aligned on what the decision making process was going to be, and that was not a problem as long as the company was growing really fast. But it became a problem when we had to start taking hard decisions. So, again, like avoiding a difficult conversation of like, well. What does it mean to be CEO? What kind of decisions can I take? 
what kind of decision can you take as the chief technology officer you know um not everyone has to have a say on everything you know which does not mean in my opinion that uh, an effective ceo has to take every decision but it does mean that a ceo has to have in theory the authority to take a decision which is a very difficult um equilibrium i would say the ultimate responsibility has to fall at the feet of the ceo yeah and so that they're responsible for everything the company does and doesn't do success failure so you should empower your subordinates uh, yeah. the people within your organization to yeah. make decisions but it's still your responsibility yeah it should be your job and so how did just i don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole but this is a really interesting question yeah. to me at least um how did your investors view that because you'd been told by vcs don't split it equally they don't like to see it and yeah. here you are you know at the ho- the personal homes of yeah. some of these incredible people yeah and you've gotten seasoned investors to, yeah. to give you their money. Mm-hmm. Was there never a, a hard line, I'll give you my money, but I need this equity to shift? No, not really. Um, that never happened, or at least I wouldn't know, right? Maybe there are maybe there are like investors that decide to pass. Like I, I probably talk with like a hundred VC funds. You know, I, I pitch nonstop. So um for sure, some companies pass because of that, but I wouldn't know. Um, I think, um, you know, I talk with, I still talk with uh, quite a few of those investors. They're still in my personal network. Um, and from what I hear, they, they would invest again. That's what they're telling me. Um, but I do tell them like what I would do differently for sure. And that is one of the things I would do differently. Obviously, there could be a world where I start a company and I am not the CEO, right? Not everybody on the boat has to be the CEO. 100%. <laughs> Nobody's driving the boat. Correct. But is the CEO. Correct. You know, we don't need 10 people to tell us where to go. Someone got to someone got to drive the boat or like someone got to clean the boat, you know? That's right. <laughs> uh, so maybe, yeah. So maybe there is a, maybe I will meet eventually um, a CEO um, that I, that I like and maybe I'll follow that CEO and therefore, I will have less equity, but I think that passing through my company experience uh, has helped me understand uh, the importance of having their conversation, the importance of like establishing um, clear lines of command uh, and clear roles and responsibilities, um, which I think is something that given your um, experience in the army should resonate. Yeah, expectation management is huge. (laughs) huge both on you know the roles and responsibilities just like you said but then also on like on outcomes and 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 both are important and like everyone in your platoon matters right yeah but someone gotta tell them where to go yep and maybe sometimes you can talk about it with them but ultimately it's your job right yeah i mean i i mean not about me i think that both for companies and like any organization, whether it's the military or elsewhere, it's yeah. great to have that period where there's there's no rank and it's just about the ideas. There's yeah. no there's no hierarchy. It's just what's the best thing to do. And then there comes a point where you have to stop that, make yeah. a decision and drive in that direction. And yeah. That's the role of the leader. So I failed at that back in the time, I would say. Um, still, we were successful. I mean, to me, raising money, getting acquired still means that I started a good company. And the fact that I was able to invest on those relationships that mattered to me and the fact that still today I'm connected to these investors 
uh, means means a lot to me. So you graduated in June of what year? 2015. You finished Y Combinator mm-hmm. in July of 2015. I. It might have been June actually. Might have been June. <laughs> yeah. So, and then by February of 2016. Yeah. You're out of the company. Yeah, and I have 10 days to find a job or I get deported. Uh, yeah, those rules. <laughs> so <laughs> familiar. <laughs> so that, I guess, drives the next decision. Yeah, it does. So if you were to take us, just, just think about that moment yeah. in your decision-making process. Uh-huh. I'd love to hear what it was because I feel like there was only one criteria. But then I'd love to hear what it would have been mm-hmm. if that if that constraint was removed. Mm. If having employment at a major company would not have, if that would have in, influenced your decision in any mm. way. I mean, you just came from a startup. Mm. You, you're ingrained in that community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it would not have been hard for you to join another startup. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. That, that choice was not afforded to me. Right, because you couldn't get the, the visa. The visa in order. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I needed a visa. So it's, so I am I am an Italian citizen, right? Um, I mean, I was like based on my accent, but like, yeah, I'm an Italian citizen. But you're not an American citizen. I'm not an the, American citizen. No, I'm not an American citizen. Um, and so I had I I had to apply for an H-1B visa, right? And there's there's two problems. First, there's only a certain amount of days that you can be unemployed for or you have to leave the country. It's a long story why, but I only had 10 days. Um, And I need to find a job. I need a company that is ready to invest in me and is ready to bet on my visa application. Because as you're probably familiar through, through your wife, visas are actually a lottery. And there's only a 50% chance that you ever get a visa. Um, so I was going to get a job around February and I was going to know I needed it I needed it in February. And uh, in April, they were going to let me know whether I had or not won the visa lottery. 50% chances. If I do not get the visa, I anyway have to leave the country. And so I'm like, what do I do? I want to stay in the US. And I'm like, well, I have turned down an offer from BCG. And and you remember we said the importance of friends and building your network. And if you recall, I said that I had called BCG earlier than what I had to out of fairness, right? And so I called them and I was like, you remember the job you offered me? Like, yeah, I was like, I really need it. And uh, and they told me, you were so honest with us back in the day that we will give you the offer if you promise that you're accepting it. And so, yeah, so then I accepted the offer uh, and I became a consultant. And when did you start? Um, March. March. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I start in March and, and I'm a very bitter person. Why would that be? 
I am not. <laughs> you haven't reached the acceptance phase in, in the grieving process yeah, yet, right? Yeah, I, I haven't, right? Like, I go from, like, you know, starting a company, particularly when things are going well, it's a high. And people, you know, and, and I had tasted that high a bit too much at that point. I had started the nonprofit a few years before, or like, well, a year, a year and a half before, two years before, whatever it is. Uh, I have started this other company. I've been rather successful at it, you know. Um, it was weird. Actually, I think that probably didn't do really, really good to my ego for a certain amount of time. But, you know, I when your company goes well, you know, you start getting published on TechCrunch and, like, people start chasing you. And, I mean, in my mind, that was a big deal. Um, looking back, I know I wasn't. <laughs> but at that time, I thought I was. And it was very humbling to go from like that to being an IC at a consulting firm. It was really hard. Um, yeah, it was really hard for me. Well, yeah, I mean, you were the CEO of a company. You're making all the strategic decisions. And yeah. now you're an IC individual contributor, yeah. consultant on a team, Yeah. you know, being told how to refine slides. your work stream. Yeah. Or slides. Slides. Yeah. Yeah. How to build a slide. It was hard. Um, and then who came through for me was, I, I, we talk about very briefly about this Italian guy that interviewed me. Right. And so he is the first guy to give me a real chance at, at BCG and to invest in my profile. And that's the luck part, right? To be successful, someone has to want to invest in you and you have to find to stumble upon this person that wants to invest in you as well and so yeah so he he took me in his team and uh, we started working together um but i'm a builder i'm not a consultant right and so i started thinking how can i build something at bcg and that's when i had an idea I was going to sell software for BCG. What kind of software? A B2B SaaS pricing product. And I went to my, to the principal, Federico Fabri. I told him, Fede, I have an idea. I was like, what? If you give me $100,000, I can build you a software that I think we can sell. I can tell you for how much, obviously. <laughs> Because it is still a consulting firm. But I think we can sell it. And he was like, are you sure that that's how much it's going to cost you? And I was like, I know for a fact. I did it at my startup. And Fede took a chance on me. And uh, he brought me to um, this senior partner. And what I'm happy about is that both, both of them are still extremely close to me. And I pitched him this vision of what product I wanted to be for clients. And he starts laughing and he goes like, <laughs> I'll give you the money. And so, yeah. And so I, I ended up being an IC on the team while at the same time managing a software development team and building a product that we ultimately sold to this customer. And then we made that product into a product that then BCG sells as part of his product portfolio. Um, and that's how I started the company within BCG. So that's awesome. Yeah. Still building. I, uh, 
I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say you didn't have a very good equity conversation on that one either. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. And uh, I was very vocal about it. <laughs> I was very vocal about it. But, you know, I think to me that was an important moment um, because as someone that was coming out of an experience that was, you know, definitely humbling, definitely hard, um, I I was questioning like, do I still have it? Like, do I know what it takes to go back to that conversation years ago? Obviously, it's easy for me to look back at my life and say this is always what I was supposed to to do. But my passion was building. My passion was um, I wanna I wanna help shape how technology, how investment in technology work, right? And I was doing that. So having a plan at that point started in my mind, I started looking back and say, yeah, I mean, I lost a company, but I am doing what I said I was gonna do. You know, the, all those bets that I've taken, you know, the moving, moving to Germany, moving to Belgium, moving to the US, you know, the first time I moved, you know, my entire life fit inside a Volkswagen Polo. I literally just packed everything I owned, put it on the Volkswagen and drove to Germany. That's it. You know, my 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 first apartment was just as big as my bed. And I was a feminine pads engineer. And you know, like seven years later, I was doing what I said I was gonna do. I was building technology, I was helping shape what to invest on. Um, I was blessed with a lot of good opportunities. You know, I, the nonprofit was saving a lot of people and, and that I think that realization is what started almost like the healing process of like having to leave my company behind. Seeing that that plan had come through that I had that network of people that cared about me, that I cared deeply about, that I had a purpose on what I was doing is really what, you know, helped me take that chance at BCG. And how was how early in your tenure was that that you I was stupidly early. That you pitched the idea? Yeah. How I was early? Probably six months. Six know? months. Yeah. All right. And when did you finish building the the you know MVP or the product that it took me five weeks. Five weeks. Yeah. Okay, so seven months into the job, you're yeah. delivering on a six-figure project yeah, I do. that two people took a chance on you for. Yeah. And you sell it to the company. Yeah, I do. All right. Well, it should have at least earned you high marks. It did, actually. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I, I had a very, from that point on, I think I had a very successful career at BCG. and. Uh, but more importantly, right, it mm -hmm. reinstilled that confidence that, hey, I'm, a, I'm here to be a builder. Yeah. It did. And that's like a, a core part of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reignited my passion for taking chances. Well, and I mean, confidence is a tricky thing. You know, you see it in professional athletes all the time mm -hmm. where they have all the ability, but if they lose the confidence, mm -hmm. you just can't play the same way. And mm -hmm. I imagine that, you know, that 40 year old Italian engineer <laughs> in the Procter and Gamble plant yeah. may have had the same youthful vision yeah. Had his confidence broken and then gave you the advice that yeah. comes after. Yeah. Right. That's true. So I mean it's 
I think that of course that's the most important thing that came out of that experience for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, um, I think it was very important that I failed. Um, had I, had I not, had I not failed, fail, fa- fail, failure is such a huge and charged word, right? Had I not failed at being the C- a CEO of, of the company, um, I don't think I would have been um, as happy with my life as I am right now. I think understanding failure and understanding what I was doing wrong and what I could have done better um, and what mattered to me, what really made me happy is really what is helping me right now. Um, I know it sounds cheeky, but I think I'm a better person because I failed spectacularly. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's cheeky. Uh, Ego can be a hell of a drug. Yeah. Yeah. And feeding it, (laughs) feeding it can be all consuming. And so like as a person who's also failed, just not at starting a business yet, um, there is a, I mean, someone with a huge ego doesn't have a great sense of humor. Yeah. Right. And so accepting failure means you have to reduce that ego a little bit. Yeah. And I think that is probably something that I I expect it benefited you. I know it's benefited me and my failures. Yeah. I would agree. I would, I would agree with you. It's, um, you know, it's, I started, uh, as soon as I, as soon as I had to leave my company, Again, amicable terms, you know, if my lawyer's listening. Um, it was it was really like, you know, it was really like, um, it was it was hard on me, right? Because I was like, am I be am I gonna be able to like do it again? And this became like a sickness. Like, am I gonna be able to do it again? Am I gonna be able to do it again? And but I think that it helped me moderate my ego in a way that first I realized that I, I am wrong. I mean, I knew it before, right? But like it really, while the startup experience was so good, you know, I started thinking, man, I'm really good at this, right? Um, but But it's only after I failed that I started looking back and I started thinking, what should I do better? You know, I should have the hard conversations, you know, I should structure the company differently. You know, I should sometimes joke less. And so it really helped me almost, it's almost to me if that company is just another step in my professional education. And when you talk about luck, I would say moving to BCG was fundamental. Um, because it did help me actually um, clear my communication style, you know, and just like invest in the things that a consulting company allows you to invest in. But fail, fail, having had that failure allowed me to have a mindset where I can take a step back and say, okay, even, you know, what am I getting out of this experience? You know, like this is not always a, you know, how my career goes is not always a representation of the person I am. Sometimes it's a representation of chance. And so how can I 
maximize my chances of getting what I want. You know, I said, I used the word luck so many times because I think that after my failure, after BCG, I realized that the best thing that you can do in your career is to put yourself as much as possible in a position of being presented with a chance. But then if the chance ever presents itself, it's something that you don't really have a lot of control on. That makes sense. And so as you continue at BCG, mm-hmm. after you build this product, yeah. you've kind of confirmed your identity as a builder, but you're a consultant, you're an advisor. Yeah, I am. And what are you getting? Other, so your communication skills were huge, you yeah. said, in, in polishing those. Yeah. Were you getting the, the view of complex decision-making at large firms in the same way you thought back when you were you know, earning your undergrad and your master's in, in Italy, or was it a different experience than that? And how long did you stay? I stayed uh, a little over three years. Um, I resigned the day after I received my green card. Um, and it was an extremely difficult decision for me. What I got out of it, um, a lot. Yes, I was able to look how decisions were taken at a high level and I was able to um, as an engineer I was always concerned with having accurate and perfect data in taking decisions and consulting has taught me about the importance of taking decisions on limited data so being just okay with uh, um, not really knowing the perfect answer but having a good enough informed answer um, I also honestly just you know got better at like presenting building a vision um modeling the you know the, the so-called consulting toolkit in my opinion bcg bcg was um the most formative formative uh, professional experience of my life i'm i loved it and and when it was time for me to to leave uh, um, the key reason for me was I wanted to go out and build again. I, I had done it during my first year of MBA. I had done it during my second year of MBA, you know, at my company. I had done it at BCG. And so I was like, that's, that's, that's it. That's what I like doing. That's what I like doing. You know, that's that, the only thing I want to do. I want to build stuff. And so I went to Fede and I called him and I told him that I wanted to leave. And then I called JMI, who was this senior partner that gave me a chance. And I'll be honest with you, man, I cried my heart out when I told him to leave. Cause uh, both Fede and, um, and JMI are two people that really invested in me. And uh, there are people though that at the same time I invested deeply in getting to know better and making sure that we had a very honest um, relationship so this concept of like being honest and earnest in my professional environment it's something that I really think is important and sometimes doesn't help me but it's also what it what helps me um, in my opinion, create relationship at work and helps me create opportunities. And 
when was that? Like three three years after you started. So I'm guessing yeah. this is some time in 2018 or 19. Uh, 20. <laughs> it was end of 2018. Um, and then I take I take a six months uh, transition package. So B- BCG is a great firm. Let me let me be clear. They're amazing people. And as you decide, I come out as what is called a project leader. That is like a, I manage, you meant that I just manage small teams. So they, I pretty much said I'm leaving and then they paid me salary for six months to look for another job. And I decide to use uh, those uh, six months um, to work on myself, similar to what I had done during my gap year. During my gap year, I had studied German, um, and I decided that I was gonna find a job, and so I was gonna study coding, because if you remember, I, I didn't take computer science because I hadn't been exposed to the tech world, right? And I didn't understand the importance of it. But now that I had been in it for quite a bit of time, I'm like, maybe I should learn how to be a developer. And so that's what I did during those six months. And well, I got married. Right. And so, yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked about this. Let's talk about that decision just real quick. Sure. So you meet Anna yeah. while you're still in your MBA program. End right? of my first year, uh, last of her, for her was later last year of undergrad. She's an engineer. And and so you all start dating. Yeah. She's in your life throughout this whole time we've been <laughs> talking through this. She's, she has a lot of patience throughout yeah. the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And so you make, you know, I think what most people would say is the right decision mm-hmm. to you know, ask her to marry you. And yeah. then you all end up getting married, what, last summer? Last right? summer, yeah. 2019? Yeah, and it's funny because uh, before coming here, my wife told me, if you're going to go on this podcast and tell everyone that that's actually a decision you regret, please tell me before. <laughs> 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 so I do not regret that, Anna, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, so... So you know, I I meet um, I meet my wife at this at this dinner, and uh, we started dating, and I'm I honestly I thought she was wonderful. Um, the, we had like this strong connection on values. You know, I was raised I was raised Christian Catholic, um, despite probably not being Christian Catholic right now, but still I am culturally Catholic. Um, so the importance of family um, and the love for engineering, for for just being a builder, and my wife similarly, very close, to, very connected to her family. She's a lovely family, um, and an engineer. So I thought we just connected, you know, on on so many on so many levels, and then um, you know we 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 passed through this experience. She. She's with me throughout this uh, startup experience. She's with me through like the phase of recovery from the startup experience. And um, I mean, I was just, I was just happier when I was around her. That was, that was such a, such a maybe easy decision to make. But I, I think that I, I thought, and I still think that she's a, a wonderful person she she's really caring um and to me she's she takes very an interest in other people she she takes an interest in me which plays a part being the the husband 
but she's just someone that I I I really enjoy talking with and um so yeah so we got married in Rome it was beautiful just great and at that point I mean you all probably hadn't had to have a conversation about putting one person's career first or the other I think you were both in San Francisco yeah. and so it was like fairly straightforward mm-hmm. not that she didn't have to sacrifice seeing you because well, you she were was probably... in Chicago actually oh okay so she actually moves to Chicago to a company to Accenture and uh, we do long distance for a while. Um, and then, uh, um, you know what's funny? When we started dating, two months into dating, uh, we started dating in, in May, the, the year is coming to an end. And uh, she was over for a drink at my place. And she stands up and she storm out of the apartment crying. And I started chasing her, like, what's going on? And she's like, I can't do this. I can't do this because I'm going to Chicago. I cannot do this. And she wanted to, you know, break up. Yeah. So I chased her. Like, what are you doing? He's like, what do you mean? We should try. We should try. And then I have to say, though, that, like, you know, as, as she was in Chicago, um, she really made a point to, like, come and see me, be next to me, help me through this. I mean, she, honestly, she was fantastic. Um, and then she actually comes back to San Francisco for me. Um, she changes company. She joins a startup called Medallia. Um, I think she joined as employee, I want to say like 250. Um, and then pretty much stays through the company um, almost all the way through um, IPO. She leaves a bit short of the IPO to actually um pursue an MBA as well. Okay. And so she then does sacrifice her career in a sense. She does, yeah. To come out there. Uh, although I don't have to have her on to give her perspective <laughs> on if that was a sacrifice or something she wanted to do anyway, um, as far as pursue a job mm-hmm. and get the, the startup experience. Mm-hmm. But then you definitely have to have that conversation as she's applying and getting into MBA programs. Yeah. And so do you quit BCG before, I know it was the day after you got your green card, but is it before or after you knew that Anna was going to be coming here to Booth? Um, I I quit after. I knew that she was going to come to Booth. Um, But BCG had offered me to move to Chicago and still work with the San Francisco office. Mm. So I wasn't really going to had to renounce to my career, but definitely, um, you know, there was a, a sense that we might have had to maybe leave apart because um, she was going to be in Chicago and I was going to find a job at a startup in San Francisco. And then what, so what, was it pure opportunity or luck? I, I, I kind of figured you were only looking at startups in Chicago. That is correct. Well, only in San Francisco. I didn't apply for a single job in Chicago. Okay. All right. So I, I started applying for a bunch of jobs in San Francisco. And I knew I wanted to, at that point, I knew I wanted to work in product. I mean, I think I've known that product was the job I really wanted since I, um, since I was doing my MBA. And actually, fun fact, I had turned down a product offer uh, as well because I had the BCG offer and then I had uh, a, a product a product job um, what's called like product senior product manager technical, which is like whatever it's like the, the product manager at Amazon. So I actually had turned down <laughs> a product offer coming out of MBA to run my company. 
Uh, and it's funny, right? Because this concept of like, I really wanted a product job, but after after uh, BCG, uh, companies were not willing really to give me a chance because they were telling me, you have never done the product job. And my answer was like, what do you mean? Like I built three company, I sold million of dollars of, uh, of you know, a product. What do you mean I've never done the project? And boy, I was wrong, by the way. I know today that I was wrong. That was a fair statement. <laughs> but yeah, I just it was just like really, really hard to get that first product job. And um, then luck honestly played a part. Um, I I went on a vacation with my wife uh, for her MBA and I, and I met this guy, Phil, and I told him what I wanted to do. I pitched again, right? I really like pitching. <laughs> And he introduced me to Ira Weiss, who is a extremely successful VC, extremely smart individual out of Chicago. And uh, he um, asked me if I want to apply for um, product role at a startup out of Chicago. And so, yeah, so I apply uh, to that job. And... Um, I get to the final round for two companies. Uh, one is called Vercada, and one is called the Forkites. Uh, Vercada do all the interviews, and they tell me, um, "You're a very good fit, but you've never done the job before, so we don't we don't want to take a bet." And Forkites, uh, these are the startup gives me gives me a chance. They tell me, "Yeah, we'll give you a product job," and so I moved to Chicago. And at that point, it was interesting, in my opinion, because a lot of a lot of people coming out of MBA um, reach out um, and they ask me like, "Why did you Why did you pick Four Kites?" And I'm like, "Well, it was a great company, but why did you pick Four Kites above other offers?" Well, because it was my only offer. Um, but then they ask me like, "Okay, that makes sense." Um, how can I make sure to get a job as product manager at? And then they give me like, you know, B2B fintech company out of Austin that works, you know, in credit. And I'm like, you don't. So what do you mean? It's like, well, you got to understand what your plan is. Like, if you're trying to work in product and that's everything that matters to you, you don't optimize for the industry. You fulfill your key thing that matters the most to you, which was do product, and you apply to a bunch of product roles, and you get a product job. And then uh, and once you get that product job, then your profile is a product person, and then you can start optimizing for your industry. But again, luck plays a part, because I met Phil and Ira, and investing in relationship played a part, because I was a friend with Phil. And so he felt like he could introduce me to to Ira. And you know, I was I was lucky. All this experience pitching my story really, I guess, helped me convince Ira that I was a good profile. And that's how I yeah, became a director of product at Forkites. And Forkites is what kind of a company? Just are, for everybody out there. Yeah, they're a B2B SaaS company. They're extremely successful, really good at what they do. They do um, supply chain visibility. So what they do is that they help you pretty much find um, a shipment, an industrial shipment as it happens. 
And I get there, and uh, on a Monday, January 6th, or January 5th, we should check which one was Monday last year. And uh, I enter the office at 9 a.m., and at 12 p.m., I'm on a flight to L.A., um, and I was tasked with completing uh, um, the first ever acquisition of this company. And so that was my first uh, job as a product manager, completed due diligence, uh, product due diligence, and assessing how uh, we were going to build a new product and unlock a complete new revenue uh, stream uh, for Forkites. And so when I look at my experience in the past, why was I qualified to do that? So how did my path bring me to having the ultimate role of deciding how to invest in technology? Um, well, I had built a company, therefore I knew what it meant to build a software product. Um, I had sold software both a BCG and, uh, and a Blue Crew. Therefore, I kind of knew what it meant to like um, negotiate a new deal. But BCG had told me how actually to do a due diligence, how actually to do a post-merger integration. So I brought that to the table and I started building the post-merger integration of this company. And then we did the, we did the, we did the merger and um, I closed where we closed uh, me and this other sales guy we closed the largest deal to be ever closed by four kites when the product still didn't exist just like uh, when I raised money for my got that first contract yeah too. got its first contract yeah. you know and and it was funny because people were like oh Michele how 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 do you sell a product that doesn't exist? And I'm like, well, you sell it. You just fucking do it, you know? And so it's funny, right? Because, like, I feel like I was extremely lucky in my life because I stumbled upon all these experiences that ultimately allowed me to do a good job at this new role that I was given. And also at the same time though, I had to come to terms with my shortcomings of effectively never have been in a product role. Therefore, never really have in an extremely structured way uh, managed um, a product roadmap uh, or, or things like that. So I was qualified to do the post-merger integration. How do you take a company, merge it with this other company and make it run as one? Um, I, had, I was qualified and I'd done how do we set prices for this new product and how do we sell it? But effectively, I've never managed in a very structured way um, the the product development process. And this because when you do it at a startup and it's your startup, you're not that organized. BCG, it was a different environment. So this to me was definitely something where um, I had to accept that I was pretty bad at it and, uh, um, again, invest a lot of time on my team and pitch them this vision where you can teach me how to do the day-to-day -day product. Uh, I can help you sell it though. And so I established this relationship with my team where I would pretty much over index, but even in the beginning of like asking them what should I do and why. And then I would help them though structure the vision better. So then we were going to be effective. Um, really, really good job. I loved it. Yeah, it's a smart way to approach it. 
uh, huh. especially when you don't have that domain expertise. I just didn't know. And what was the hardest thing for you to learn, like moving to product where you thought you wanted to be and where you now have confirmed that you like you want to be? I think the the hardest thing for me was probably accepting uh, that things take time. So, um, you know, the engineering team has his own time at which they have to develop things, and it's definitely um, it's definitely an art. It's you know, it's creating something that doesn't exist requires time. And things will be wrong. So I was always coming from consulting. I was always very concerned with what about if the analysis is an error. And the mentality for me had to switch and the product will have a bug. And that's fine. As long as we know how to react quickly. And so that to me was a very strong shift. And also... At BCG, because you're consulting, uh, most of the time what you do is that you go to a customer and you tell them, like, this is how you should do it. But then you're never there most of the time. You're not there for the implementation of the solution. And so what I had to learn in my first product role was that um, you will not get it right. Like, your processes will not be perfect. And processes should not be in the way of building the product. And so being able to accept that there's going to be mistakes, your process is not always going to be best in class, but having a plan of how do we make sure that we become best in class? How do we make sure that our team, my team becomes the best team out there? Um, is really what uh, I had to learn. And so you learned that job over the last you know year. Yes, and then, so. I, and then I quit, yes. And then you quit. Yeah, I did, you, yes. And you found a new job. I found a new job. What was your the, the drivers for, for that decision and, and the framework for making it? You remember I said that I, I was interviewing for two companies, right? One gave me a job and one didn't. Vercada, the second company, reached out to me a year later, and they said, we actually do have a job for you. So throughout that year, I, I, had, I have always been very fascinated by what this company was trying to build. So Vercada does um, AI-enabled IoT security. So you can imagine they're just like very, very smart security cameras. They do facial recognition, pattern recognition. And I just thought it was a great technology. And I thought they were a very good team. I liked them a lot. And so throughout this year, I would still like send an email to the VP of product. I would still like, you know, if I wrote an article, I would send him an article. If I'd work on a presentation, I would send him a presentation. There, I had learned throughout my career this important of like, you know, keeping your relationships and keeping them earnest, right? And so like I kept like sending over this thing and till, till they called me and yeah, and then I was faced with this decision like, um, do I stay at uh, Four Kites or what I'm, I'm doing really, really well, it's a great company, I love them, or do I move to a new company? And then so what I started looking at is this. Um, number one, I went back to um, what is my passion? So what technology do I find more interesting? Um, and then the, 
again, like four kites, I love it. I love them. They're a great product, but I found the other product more, more interesting. And then the second was what decision maximizes my luck, my chances to eventually start a company. And I thought it was going to be Vercada. For, for what reasons? Um, their entire engineering team is uh, based out of San Francisco. So I was going to be exposed to the engineering team on a daily basis, which was going to maximize my chances to maybe one day, four or five years in the future, build a relationship or a connection that will um, transform itself into an opportunity. And also I was going to go back to that same network of investors and personal connections that um, uh, I had nurtured as I was in San Francisco. And so to me, it went back to the usual two things that I always probably like measure my decision making against, which is like, is it my passion? Do I like doing it? Do I care enough? Or, and this number two is, does this maximize my luck to fulfill my plan? I think is a very easy framework. And the plan is? Well, you know. To build a company. To right? build a company. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, to build a billion dollar company. Right. You know, I mean, and if that Why doesn't happen, there? that's fine. Yeah. You know? If that doesn't happen, it's fine. But like to, to me, and here's funny, right? Because like if you had met me um, as I was as I was running my company prior to that big failure, I would have told you that building a company, having my company, being the CEO of a company was my passion and my obsession. What I realized is that that's not the case. I like the process of building the company and I want to be at a position where I can do that. And therefore, yes, my long-term goal and dream could be I want to be a CEO again, but effectively I don't care about becoming one as long as I am building and as long as I'm like fulfilling my passion and I'm exposed to new technology. Okay. Understood. Makes sense. So to switch gears just a little bit, I'd like to talk about your experience mm -hmm. at Booth as a partner. Yeah. So you did an MBA. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, that really, you know, putting myself out there, introducing myself really helped me out. That's okay. That's hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. As a, as a little technical note, we lost about 45 seconds there. So that's okay. You all came right in. I was asking Michele why, how he felt in like joining as a partner and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got the majority of it. Thank, thankfully. Um, and so you were able to form relationships, people that just didn't see you as an outsider. Correct. Right? Yes. And where did it go for, from there for you? Like, did did you just feel like you were a part of it in the same way Taylor was at, at Stanford yeah. or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously I were, um, yeah, I would say so. You know, I, um, I made that point and to hang out, you know, just with people with the MBA from the MBA, even without my wife. Um, and I, I, I thought that this was actually going to help my wife as well. Cause I wanted to make sure that I was going to be independent from her so that she could have her MBA experience and I could just like, you know, hang out, have a good time. And I, I felt off really, really much ingrained into the boot life. Um, I really enjoyed it actually. I had a blast um, up to COVID obviously. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. Changed everything. For well, you. they kind of changed uh, the NBA life. Yes. And what is your perspective on Booth versus Stanford? I mean, there's inevitably going to be someone yeah. listening to this that's into both schools. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, number one, just get an MBA. Um, you'll be lucky to get any MBA. Um, and then I would say if you are afforded the luck to have to pick between MBAs, make sure to talk with like people at both schools and or multiple schools, depending how good you are, and trying to understand where you think you're going to be the best fit. Um, so I think boot to me, shine to me as being like, uh, um, and there's obviously everybody will tell is a bit more rigorous from an academic perspective. Um, and I think this is also a consequence of like the kind of professors that the two programs tend to have. So the GSB being close to Silicon Valley, uh, over index on this concept of like starting companies. And this manifests itself with the fact that a lot of the um, professors are actually former business people. Because they're former business people, as a consequence, you tend to do a lot more cases, you tend to have a lot more like guests coming in and just talking about their experience. While boot tends to have more real professors. And as a consequence, the classes, in my opinion, tend to be more academically rigorous. Um, the GSB, um, it was not cool to say that you wanted to be a consultant. Everybody wanted to be a CEO. Um, and or everybody wanted to work in tech. Um, and also people don't really move from the Bay Area. Uh, while I would say boot, uh, it seems like traditional paths are actually considered more attractive. Let it be like consulting or, 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 or finance. Whatever you happen being, uh, um, I would say you're, 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 you're okay. Like boot, in my opinion, and I'm sorry for listeners that might disagree, I would say Harvard, Stanford, and Booth are the top three MBAs in the world. And so if you're lucky enough to have stumbled upon a reader of one of your essays that think that your essay is really good and you get an offer, you will be fine. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned. Yeah, and for the entrepreneurs out there, there's plenty of good opportunities here at Booth that as I, well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's really like, it's not, is, is, is not that like, uh, no, none of this school we really like. You will not realize your, um, I, I mean, it's, it's funny that I'm in this position because like, I feel like I have so much still to prove in my professional career. I, I know that I'm in my infancy of my career, and I have so many classmates of mine that are like, extremely. Mom multiple times more successful than what I am, right? And so even if we went in the same program, you know, the degree of like who's going to be successful and why, you know. Well, and how do you define success, Yeah. right? I mean, you're successful, you're on your path. It doesn't mean you've reached the mountaintop yet. Correct, you know? yes. And that's also what probably losing my company helped me realize that I didn't have to start a company today. It can wait. It can wait my luck to meet the right person. You have but a happy marriage. You, you have, have a, a great marriage. career. You got all two cats. Things. Two cats. <laughs> One of my investors 
Andy when I was asking him what I should do next in my career. He and I was like, should I go big tech or should I go to a small company? And he told me he's actually the guy that like instilled me a bit this concept of like maximizes your chances. He told me, I was like, Michaela, like Andy, tell me. If you and I go fishing, but my pond is smaller and has more fish, I fish more. And so in taking your your MBA, you are already maximizing your chances of catching a good fish, of having a very successful career. But what success is, you're right, depends on what your goal is, on what you define as success, and effectively does require luck. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great a great place to end. Looking forward to seeing all the incredible things you do. Also, you're going to San Francisco right when everybody's leaving. So, yes, you know, yes. Things should be cheap. Yeah, I hope so. I'm uh, I'm leaving in a few days from now. Actually, I'm moving out. I'm starting a road trip on the 26th, and I'm moving back to the Bay. All right. Well, drive safe, and I, I guess I'll see you in Miami or Austin when uh, <laughs> when you finally decide to leave with everybody else. Well, and then uh, for your wedding. Yeah, for, the, for the wedding in Mexico. <laughs> absolutely. Oh yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.